It's six o'clock on this manic Monday, and you're listening to Southern Oregon's beloved community radio station, KSKQ, and a little show that we call Dream Infringement. That's right, Dream Infringement, with the hostess you love the mostest, myself, Emily, Bobby, and Jennifer. And what we like to do here at Dream Infringement is tell stories and play songs based on a weekly theme. And this week's theme is Animal Wars. Most people love animals, or like them at least, even if someone doesn't want to have a domesticated pet, I think they can appreciate animals in nature. I would imagine most of us can. Is there anyone who hates animals? Like all of them? I don't know. I've never met someone like this. I don't know that I'd want to meet someone like this. Well, as much as most of us love animals, sometimes humans have found themselves in a little bit of a pickle with the animals that they love so much. And they have fought against them in an animal war, which brings me back to the name of our episode and our theme this week. So yeah, we're going to talk about wars against emus, wars against rats, wars against dinosaurs. That's right, dinosaurs. You know, you can go to war with animals, but you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. And that's our first song. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd by Roger Miller. Roger Miller, take us away. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you've mind to. You can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. You can't take a shower in a parakeet for this part, I recruited help from afar, very afar, with narration very kindly provided by Australia's own Mark. Cue obligatory didgeridoo sounds. Have you heard about the Emu War of 1932? At the end of World War I, Australia sought to reintegrate returning veterans back to civilian life. One such method was providing veterans with farmland. Nearly 5,000 signed up to transition from soldiers to farmers. Difficulties hit in 1929 when the Great Depression sent wheat prices plummeting. Eventually the farmers band together, refusing to ship their 1932 harvest until they received fair prices for their wheat. During this pivotal time came the arrival of 20,000 migrating emus. The emu, indigenous to Australia, it's a shaggy, long-necked, flightless bird that averages about 5 feet 7 inches and can weigh up to 130 pounds. They can reach speeds of over 40 miles an hour at a dead run. The government had declared them pests in 1922 for the damage they did to farmland. They'd always been a nuisance, but 20,000 at once was unheard of. Farmers sent a letter to the Minister of Defence in Perth requesting machine guns. The Commandant of the 5th Military District agreed, as it would be a good target practice for his men and would make them look good to the wheat withholding farmers. 
The war was conducted under the command of Major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. It may look like a grand endeavour, but it was just three men, a pickup truck, two Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds for 20,000 birds. You'd literally have to kill two birds with one stone or bullet. November 2nd, as they were train bound for Burrakopin, the men spotted a mob of 40 to 50 emus. They decided there's no time like the present. The birds were out of range, so Meredith asked the locals to circle around in their vehicles and drive the birds towards them and the machine guns. 50 farmers excitedly did so. Meredith then learned a crucial fact about the enemy. They don't stampede in a straight line like most animals. They scatter in all directions when startled. They never came within range of the soldiers. Meredith asked the locals to repeat the same tactic with much the same results, except he managed to kill six of the emus. Six down, 19,994 to go. The following is an original news broadcast from 1932, and we can see that the public was told a little something different. These are some of the unfortunate farmers whose sweet crops have been trampled down by hordes of emus, but they're hopeful of getting rid of the pest at last. They've never used this sort of scarifier before, but things are desperate, and it's war to a finish this time. The scouts of the advancing army have keen eyesight, and in order to get close to the main body, our lads have to do some real stalking, with the enemy watching events through their periscopes, raised up over the heads of corn. Now they're retiring, off at 40 miles an hour. Well, instead of the birds ruining the farmers, it seems the tables are turned and there'll be no more damage done here for many a day to come. And now, back to what actually happened. November 3rd. Again, the soldiers spotted a herd of emus and packed into trucks along with some farmers and stormed after the birds. They killed nine, but only after the birds devastated a local farm. Observers noted that the emus were seeming to quickly learn the range limits of the machine guns and would now rarely venture within a thousand yards of the men. Meredith decided to try ambushes in order to surprise the birds at a short range. After sighting about 30 emus, the men fired about 150 rounds, but did not take down a single bird. It could take 5 to 10 direct hits to down an emu. Meredith would later record that the emu's resilience is more than astonishing. It is miraculous. If I had a division of men who could carry bullets like that, it would take on any army in the world. November 4th. They set up an ambush again. They opened fire at point-blank range, but the gun jammed after 12 had been dispatched of. Reporters went from enthusiastic to sarcastic. The emus have proved that they are not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird standing fully six feet high, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives a signal. November 8th. Reporters estimated the men had killed approximately 200 emus. Meredith insisted on 300, and the locals bragged of 500. This did not put a dent in the emu population, and by causing them to stampede, the birds destroyed most of the remaining wheat. As the word of the failing mission spread, officials soon criticised the hunt, and after a Labour politician asked if there would be medals, a Western Australian MP replied that if there were, they should go to the emus. Defence authorities ordered that Meredith and his machine guns withdraw. The farmers expressed their outrage, and a second war on the emus was started. It did not fare much better. By December 2nd, Meredith estimated the men had killed about 15 birds per day, and the operation was fully recalled on December 10th, 1932. 
In his final report, Meredith claimed that of the 9,860 rounds expended, 986 birds had been killed. He also added that an additional 2,500 had later succumbed to their wounds, a calculation for which he provided no methodology. Farmers continued to request machine guns. Eventually, the government reinstituted the bounty system, and between the years of 1945 and 1960, local farmers claimed bounties on over 284,000 emus. Some enterprising farmer took to raising emus for this purpose, but the herds were thinned enough that the farms turned profitable again. Listeners may be excited to learn that a movie retelling of the events, written by John Cleese, Monty Franklin, and Rob Schneider, is slated for release in late 2022. Our thanks go out to Mark for providing his vocal skills, for adding a little bit more of an authentic flair to the story. The song I'll be playing is by an Australian artist that we have played before, actually, because we're fans of hers. This is Courtney Barnett with Take It Day by Day, which is good advice if you're ineffectively hunting emu. Take it day by day, you gotta put one foot in front of the other. You get what you want, I promise, but don't. Sometimes a war involves guns and knives and other types of weaponry. And sometimes a war is a legal battle. And sometimes that legal battle is between humankind and animals. And because everyone is entitled to a fair and just trial, even the animals have legal representation. Throughout history, there have been a surprising amount of animals that have gone to trial. Uh, Most of the time, it was animals that lived alongside humans, and pigs in particular were frequently convicted of biting or eating parts of small children and babies. Other unlucky animals involved in a crime would share the punishment of the law with the human perpetrator. Sometimes, animals would, would have their own lawyer at their trials. That's what brings us to this story of a case of the town of Autun in France against a bunch of rats that ate their barley. In 1508, the small village of Autun faced a disastrous problem. Rats had been eating all of their barley crop, and the villagers were absolutely sick of this, and so They took the extraordinary step of making proclamations at several crossroads that the rats were to attend an Episcopal court that would be assembled to hear the villagers' complaints against them. I'm not entirely sure how this worked. Like, did they just get groups of people and go to particular crossroads and just yell out, you know, hear ye, hear ye, all y'all rats need to come to court, we're suing you. I'm not sure. Um, But unsurprisingly, the rats did not attend the hearing. And so the prosecutor moved that they should be sentenced in absentia. 
But luckily for the rats, the presiding bishop decided that the creatures deserved legal counsel. And this was because the rats would be facing excommunication, the worst possible punishment in the eyes of the clergy, if the court ruled in the villagers' favor. Therefore, none other than Bartholomew Chassanet was set to the task with a passion. Chassanet pointed out to the court that it wasn't just one or two rats that were being tried here, it was a whole host of them. As such, he moved that every single rat should be allowed to attend court and make their own representations. Chassanet added that the rodents were spread so far and so wide throughout the area that the summons made by the villagers could not possibly have reached all the creatures that resided in the diocese. And maybe his legal arguments were just so good that he was able to persuade the court, or maybe the judges just had a soft spot for animals. Um, but either way, the court agreed with Chassanet's argument. It was held that the matter should be adjourned and reheard after proper summons had been issued. The summons was to be preached from every pulpit in Autun. That was ruled to be sufficient to notify every single rat. The priests did as the court instructed and preached the summons. The date of the next hearing came around, and... <gasps> no rats showed up. Chassanet argued, of course they didn't turn up. They're afraid for their lives. The lawyer explained that his clients had ignored the summons because no defendant was obliged to risk his or her life in coming to court, and that applies to rats too. After all, to get to the place of trial, the rats would have to come out into the open where cats and dogs would be waiting to pounce on them. As such, their absence that day was justified. Once again, the judges saw the logic of this. They adjourned the case once more. And unfortunately, this is where our story ends. So we don't know if there was a, um, a third and possibly final hearing. We don't know if the villagers maybe locked up the cats and dogs to give the rodents a fair chance to attend. And while this whole trial seems kind of ridiculous, um, it did actually go on to be used as a precedent for a later human trial. So in November 1540, when Chassanet was president of the Parliament of Province, there was a campaign by Catholics against Protestants within France. A dozen Protestant inhabitants of the town of Merendal chose not to attend a summons, and as a result, the court ordered that the whole town be burned to the ground. Eighty families were thus condemned. However, the Seigneur of Arles made a powerful speech to Chassanet, reminding him of the submissions he'd made on behalf of the rats. If rats were to be granted the opportunity to be heard, the seigneur argued, then surely humans had the right too. Couldn't the imperiled Protestants of Merendal also be allowed safe passage to a fair hearing? Chassanet was so moved by this plea and appeal to his own case that he not only called off the attempted burning, but he also persuaded the king of France to hold off the sentence indefinitely. Unfortunately for the inhabitants of Merendal, after Chassanet died, his successor arranged for the sentence to be carried out. And in a cruel twist, he offered the townsfolk free passage to Germany, but then changed his mind and laid waste to the whole town and its inhabitants. Mm. I love that this happened. I loved 
I love that people um, thought that they could take rats to court. I love that Bartholomew Chassonet gave it his all. Like, he sounds like an amazing lawyer. Um, they don't make them like they used to back in 1502. Um, I love that we don't really know how it ended. I think that the mystery is kind of fabulous. And also, I don't know if the people thought this was silly and like for fun or if they were genuinely um, trying to give rats a notice of their court summons. I don't know. Everyone was drinking out of lead cups back then. That's sort of how I explain away crazy historical things like, oh, it's probably lead, lead poisoning. Um, but anyway, now you know. People take animals to court, and at least in Bartholomew Chassonet's mind, they deserve legal representation. This is Shorty Long with Here Comes the Judge. I have an idea for a new superhero. These are its powers. Armor so strong, it can deliver 50,000 blows without breaking. A punch as powerful as a 22 caliber bullet. A punch so fast, it turns water into plasma and sound into light. So fast, it can create shock waves that can stun or kill instantly and generate temperatures as hot as the sun. And their vision, so sensitive, they can see in both infrared and ultraviolet spectra. They use 16 color receptor cones compared to humans who have just three. That's right, they can see UV, visible, and polarized light. They can see colors and images accessible to no other being on Earth. Yes, meet our new superhero, Mantis Shrimp Man, or woman. Except it's more of a supervillain than a superhero. The mantis shrimp was making headlines in 2001 as the killer shrimp terrorizing the children's area of a popular aquarium in Monterey Bay. But how did the interloper breach safety sanctions to wreak havoc upon this poor aquarium? It all happened when a batch of live rock was delivered in the year 2000. Live rock is old coral reef that aquariums use because they contain useful bacteria. The rock is initially kept in quarantine, we know what that's like, just to make sure it's safe to introduce into the aquarium. But little did they know that two sneaky shrimp had buried into a hole and were hiding away. They stayed hidden for a very long time until the rock was put in the coral reef exhibit. And that's when the killing started. The aquarists started to notice that hermit crabs were disappearing. 
so were snails and barnacles, and all that were left were piles of broken shells, which generally points to one kind of troublemaker. They also could hear it. Senior aquarist David Kripe told the Associated Press, when you're working near the exhibit, you can hear the pop when he's going after the barnacles. The tank that this happened in isn't very big. It's about the size of a bathtub. Even so, the shrimp are really hard to catch because these shrimp are referred to as thumb splitters. They have claws that can shatter a clamshell, crack open a crab, even shatter glass. A mantis shrimp could cut through a human's finger within milliseconds, injury that can lead to an amputation. That's why it's always advised to keep your distance. One nimble aquarium worker managed to snare one of the shrimp with a pair of very long tongs. They named the first shrimp Sparky and put him on display in his own tank with like a little video showing a mantis shrimp in action and he became very popular. A lot of visitors would arrive and ask where, like, where are the killer shrimp? Are they eating everything? Because, I mean, I was curious. I have looked at the YouTube videos to watch the shrimp in action. But a little more about the mantis shrimp. Some species can reach a length of up to 12 inches. They're carnivores who will eat just about everything. They're also pretty solitary. And unless you have a very large tank, they should be kept alone. Some aquarists love mantis shrimp and love to keep them, I guess, as you would say, as pets. Not really pet-like, though, because they're, they're hardy, they're difficult to kill, they aren't picky about tank water conditions or filtration, they're easy to feed, cheap to maintain. However, if you get a mantis shrimp in your aquarium that you don't want there. They recommend trying to force it out of its hiding hole with fresh water. Apparently that gets a big reaction. <laughs> if you pick up the rock, put some fresh water on it, it, they say sometimes it'll come flying out in a rage. How dare you douse me with fresh water? Uh, they also say that since they're nocturnal feeders, that if you stand guard with a net at night. Sometimes you can catch them that way. Let's see. And also you can try to buy or make your own trap. But now once you have this aggressive little creature, what do you do with it? They suggest that you can keep it and provide it with a tank of its own to live in. Just invite it in, give it a house. Um, ask a friend if they want it. You can see if a local fish store will take it. They might even pay you money for it. Or you can contact a public aquarium in your area to see if they're interested in having it. As long as, you know, they have shatterproof acrylic glass and a tank free of things it wants to eat. So anyway, that is the mantis shrimp. And the song I'm going to play is by Super Organism and it is called The Prawn Song. Hi there, this is Bobby. In 1993, 
something happened that would forever reframe my perception of the world and reality as I knew it. It was a movie that was created by a director, maybe you've heard of him, by the name of Steven Spielberg. And that movie was Jurassic Park. In this movie, we find a very wealthy man who has the money and the means to experiment with dinosaur DNA. And he decides to create a bunch of dinosaurs, grow them in a laboratory, and then put them behind bars so that wealthy uh, zoo goers can buy a ticket and visit him on his secluded island and see these dinosaurs and have a great time and then hit the gift shop and buy a bunch of Jurassic Park merchandise, which was a fantastic marketing ploy because you better believe that after I watched that movie, I really wanted a Jurassic Park hat or t-shirt or socks or bed sheets or something. And believe it or not, they had it. It was there waiting for uh, nine-year-old me. So thank you, Hollywood. I mean, if Holly could, Holly would, and Holly did. So how did that movie reframe my perception of reality and the many movies to come in the Jurassic Park franchise? You got Jurassic World, you have the new one that just came out, Jurassic World, I think it's like, I think there was like Fallen Kingdom and then now it's like Earth's Dominion or something. I can't remember. You Jurassic Park heads, I know you're yelling at your radio right now and that's okay because I don't profess to know exactly what's going on with the Jurassic Park franchise, but I am a major diehard fan of that original Jurassic Park. It was just fantastic, a wonderfully made movie. So how did it change my perception of reality? Well, in this movie, okay, you have a bunch of human beings who are trying to harness nature. They are trying to put nature inside a box. And as Mr. Jeff Goldblum so wonderfully articulates it, life finds a way. And so there are certain rules that as humans we place over nature, expecting for nature to follow those rules. But guess what? Nature hasn't been told what the rules are. Nature plays by its own rules. Case in point, we have several scenarios through our history, our modern history, where a kid falls into one of those gorilla enclosures at a zoo, right? And you know what everybody does? All they can do is wait. All they can do is hope that the gorilla is careful with the child. And while the zookeeper is off trying to find a gorilla-grade tranquilizer gun, which they probably keep very far away from the enclosure for some reason. It feels like it's like, what, 25 minutes before they can finally get back with the tranquilizer gun. The gorilla has had time to pick up the unconscious kid, rock the kid, and then stroke its hair, and then decide I'm bored, decides I'm bored with this kid, and then just kind of like walk away the way gorillas do. Silverback gorilla, the tenderness that you see in those clips, you can look them up on YouTube, is amazing. But again, this proves that humans do not have control over nature. Nature plays by its own rules. And it really is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because humans 
find joy in the unpredictability of nature. It's both scary and fun to watch. You've seen it a million times where like a kitty cat is playing with a marble on the floor and everybody laughs and claps their hands and enjoys the cuteness of this kitten. But when a tiger reaches through an enclosure and grabs a guy's members only jacket when he's trying to take a selfie just a little too close to the tiger's cage, suddenly it's not cute anymore. And I think that's why I found Jurassic Park so enjoyable as a kid. Because like fire, it's beautiful to watch. But when you try to get your hands too close to it and try to touch it, what happens? You get burned. And with Jurassic Park, you have all of these dinosaurs that are like so amazing and, and beautiful and, and just like incredible. Uh, dinosaurs that humans have not had an opportunity to actually witness for the first, you know, wit witness in 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 life in real life that we never really cross paths right in the stream of time but now in this movie humans get to observe the dinosaurs but observing is not without its consequences what you have in jurassic park is two fighters hurled into the octagon these fighters by the name of man versus nature and now who will win? Who will survive? Well, definitely the dinosaurs will survive. It's very hard to kill a dinosaur, as you will see if you have not seen Jurassic Park. It's hard to kill a dinosaur. They, there's too many, too many things that they have going for them. Humans are squishy, and a pointed stick can basically be our demise. But with a dinosaur, the hide is a bit thicker. Which brings me to my next point that we are also a part of nature. And as much as we'd like to think that it is us and then it is nature, we are also in the same category as nature because there are instinctive things that we have within our cells, within our brains that cause us to continue to move forward as a human race. And you see that spirit of survival in Jurassic Park. You see Laura Dern, no matter how many walkie-talkies she has wrapped around her ankle and how far she has to run and how many dismembered Samuel L. Jackson arms freak her out, she is still determined to survive. And I've had this conversation many times with my wife Emily and co-host of this very radio show. What would you do if you were running from raptors or a T-Rex? And this is what she usually says. I would throw myself at the raptors or the T-Rex or whatever dinosaur is chasing me and sacrifice myself and not fight at all. So would you throw yourself at the dinosaur to sacrifice yourself to protect the others in your group or would this be just just you alone either way i would do it to protect those in my group i would do it if i were by myself and it's because i hate the idea of like struggling and fighting for something that's ultimately futile um so if I was by myself, I would just be like, all right, take me. 
I think. I mean, in the moment, of course, fight or flight kicks in, right? Like, whatever is in our brain overtakes us and does something. So I can't for sure. Like, I'm not 100% sure that I would do this, but in this moment of not being in fight or flight mode, I would just let let them have me. And then especially if we were with a group of people, yeah, for sure. I would be like, no, that's all right. Take me. I'm yeah. cool with it. <laughs> so your will to survive, your will to survive um, separate from this scenario, because right now you are not on uh, the island that Jurassic Park is nestled in. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're comfortably in your uh, town home, sitting on your couch, far away from dinosaurs. Right. Okay. And so in your mind, you hurl yourself into the jaws of the you know whatever T Rex. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just end it all. Yes. Right. Because you feel you have no fighting chance. I have no fighting chance, and I don't want to look like a fool, like trying to fight or looking like, like, I don't want to be scared. I just want to be like, I would just like open my arms and be like, yeah, do it. Okay. Yeah. Like kind of like a samurai's death, like with, with, with honor. You want to die with honor. I want to die with honor. So, so in your mind, hurl, instead of fighting for your life to escape the dinosaurs, dying with honor is hurling yourself into the jaws of the dinosaurs. Yes, I would hope that I would run towards it and just be like, take me now. <laughs> yeah, whereas my my feelings on it are determination to survive at all costs. I mean, I'm not going to like sacrifice another person. I would never do that in order to... <laughs> You're like throwing, throwing, throwing people in people. front of you. <laughs> no, but... Not, I mean, at all costs within like the realm of morality, I guess, and <laughs> ethics. So, gotcha. So that's my determination. But you touched on a really interesting point, Emily, and that's that if you were in that scenario, maybe something would kick in, some survival instinct where throwing yourself into the mouth of a T Rex is suddenly off the table. Mm-hmm. That that's not within the realm of possibility because you have to fight for the survival of your uh, of your body or of your future. Mm-hmm. Right. So, do you think that that is something that could happen? I mean, it's possible. I guess I just really hate the idea of me being scared and running. Like, I guess if I had to choose between, like, if I couldn't just throw myself at the dinosaur and I had to choose between fight or flight I would rather fight I just don't want to be so afraid and terrified and then die like I would rather be you want to end it on your own terms yes exactly end things on your own terms I am a bit of a control freak okay yeah and you can see those those uh mechanisms at work within this scenario within the jurassic park scenario okay interesting well nature versus man is an interesting concept i feel that jurassic park really explores that very well it's a very philosophical subject that you can spend hours thinking about meditating on and working through 
And I think that it reveals a lot about what's going on inside our own human brains. And it's interesting that we'll never know what's really happening within the brains of these creatures that we share this beautiful blue and green sphere with. And maybe it's better that we don't. I thought you were going to say, we'll never know what's going on inside the brains of dinosaurs. <laughs> that's true. But that is also true. Yeah, that's also a true thing. So, And with that thought in mind, here's the song that I chose to go along with this uh, in-depth discussion of man versus nature. And that song is Extinction by Parquet Courts. Enjoy. Making a distinction between life and love. Favor the former when you wear a mask Massacres are forming in the reflection And I'm trying not to turn into a psychopath We here at Dream Infringement love our pets, so we understand if you're a millionaire who wants to make sure your pets are taken care of after your untimely demise. And it can be a complex process. You would need to create a trust with a trustee who controls the money and decides when and how it gets paid, a caretaker who looks after the pet and asks for money from the trustee to pay bills and related expenses, and an enforcer who makes sure that the trustee and caretaker aren't mishandling the funds. Typically, a trust details what should happen once a pet dies. Sometimes the owner yields whatever money is left over to individuals or to a charity. There is a risk that when the pet dies and the caretaker doesn't want to stop taking their money, they'll go out and buy a pet that looks exactly like the first one, so they don't have to stop. It's recommended a person put a limit on the amount of time a trustee can collect money from the trust, lest their money be piecemealed away on the care of a line of imposter pets. So who have some of these very wealthy animals been? We have Michael Jackson who left his chimp Bubbles $2 million payable on his death, Majel Barrett Roddenberry, the widow of the Star Trek creator, Jean, set up a four million trust fund for their dogs, plus an additional one million for a domestic employee to care for them. Miles Blackwell, the childless publishing magnate, left his hen, Gigu, ten million dollars. Reclusive British antique dealer, Ben Ray, endowed almost his entire estate of $12.5 million to Blackie the cat. But sometimes the person is not a childless widow. They in fact do have children or grandchildren who feel very strongly about losing out on their inheritance to the family pet. One such infamous case is the case of Gail Posner. She left $3 million in trust funds along with her $8 million mansion to her three dogs and $27 million to the staff, which was combined the aides including bodyguards and housekeepers, and one was given the right to live in the mansion to care for the dogs. Her one and only estranged son, Brett, was set to have only $1 million per the will in the court. 
he filed a lawsuit alleging that his mother was unduly influenced by the house waitstaff. In her later life, Gail had gone on something of a bizarre press rampage promoting her beloved pet chihuahua, Conchita, as the most spoiled dog in the world. Carr says he and his mother had a rocky relationship, but grew closer in the last decade until 2008. The staff kicked him out of Posner's house and convinced his mother to keep him away. He says he captured it all on video. Carr also says the staff exercised undue influence and connived, cajoled, and coerced, he was very alliterative, <laughs> their way into the will. That convincing her to favor her canine companions would be a great way to keep themselves working and getting paid while living in the mansion. Household aides, he claims, drugged his sick mother with pain medications and conspired to steal her assets by inducing her to change her will and trust arrangements in 2008. Mr. Carr claims that the aides directed a deeply disturbed Gail Posner to hire a publicist to promote Conchita as one of the world's most spoiled dogs. Mr. Carr's lawyer said he believes the publicity campaign was part of a ruse to explain why a large trust fund was needed to care for the dogs. And while I could find plenty of articles about the case being filed, there was no information on what the outcome was, so I had to track down the original court case online in Miami-Dade, Florida, to find out that they entered into a highly confidential settlement agreement and the official court case was dismissed. So we'll never know the outcome, but I take it that Mr. Carr walked away with more than $1 million this time. One of the most notorious cases was when Leona Helmsley died and left her pet Maltese named Trouble a trust fund valued at $12 million. Leona was born to immigrant parents, worked her way up to become vice president of one of New York's most prestigious real estate firms. Already a millionaire and a three-time divorcee, she advanced further in her career when she married Harry Helmsley, a real estate entrepreneur who made her a senior vice president at one of his own brokerage firms. By all accounts, she demanded perfection and luxury for her guests, but was a ruthless and exacting employer. Her tendency to use offensive language and insults earned her the nickname the Queen of Mean. She was not close to her only son, Jay, and his family. In fact, when he passed away in 1982, he and his family were living in a home that Helmsley owned. Soon after the funeral, she served her daughter-in-law an eviction notice. By this time, Helmsley and her husband were billionaires. Later it was discovered that the Helmsleys had illegally claimed an $8 million remodel on their private estate as a business expense. They were charged with tax evasion. With Harry's health in decline, Helmsley alone was found guilty and sentenced to 16 years in prison. However, she was released just 19 months later. Harry Helmsley died in 1997, leaving her an estate worth well over $5 billion. With her husband gone and alienated from most of her friends and all her other family members, she lived her last few years alone with her pet dog, Trouble. 
she left her personal estate valued at more than four billion to a charitable trust and most of her inheritance from Harry to dog charities. Two of Helmsley's four grandchildren were also given a five million trust as long as they provided proof each year that they had visited their father's gravesite at least once. The other two grandchildren were initially disinherited entirely for reasons unknown. When the will was challenged in court, a judge took six million from Trouble's trust fund and gave it to the two grandchildren not named in the will. Holmesley's brother Alvin, one of five executors named in her will, was also given an inheritance and charged with caring for Trouble after her death, but he refused to look after the dog, despite accepting the money. Nearly twelve years after her death, a judge awarded Helmsley's four living executors a hundred million dollars in fees. Sadly, Trouble passed away in 2011 at the age of twelve. The remainder of his fortune has since been donated to charity. The song I'm playing is by an artist named Camille. It's called Cats and Dogs, where she feels that people are anthropomorphizing, that's a hard word to say, cats and dogs, and she's here to tell us that they're not our friends. Sorry, Camille, I still disagree. Cats and dogs are not our friends, they just pretend, they just pretend, it's just emotions we invent, so Well, that is it from us here at Dream Infringement. We hope you have a wonderful week and stick around for more KSKQ goodness. Good night, everyone. Good night, Miriam.